This week on Deep Night... Now, I thought to myself, like, here is this kind of, you know, hole-in-the-wall joint with red checker tablecloths. Let's name it after the mythical South American city of gold. Friends, hello. My name is Dale Seaver, and I welcome you to the Deep Night. The hour of regrets and revelations is upon us, and I am your guide, your host, and your companion. We broadcast to you this evening at a spiritual frequency of seven, with a soul energy of fifteen, and I have prepared my lower extremities to receive the harvest. Yes, it's decorative gourd season once again, and that means it's time to change over your altars to honor the autumn goddess Thinoperon. A program note, we want to thank everyone who came out to the live show at the Sliver Room for our season premiere event. We'll be posting that audio soon, but my goodness, what a time we had of it. Thanks to Dan Kennedy, Rachel Chavkin, Rosebud Baker, Cornelius Loy, and James Habaker for being up there with me. And to Julie Cruz, well, we wish you a speedy recovery. More on that fine show on a future episode. Now, we come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. And tonight, folks, oh, isn't it lovely? As I gaze out my window by pushing aside the heavy velvet curtains that Galinda has installed for better sleep and astral projection purposes, I can see a low greenish mist hovering just above the Gowanus' surface. It's a cycle of life. Living matter enters the canal, is quickly extinguished by heavy metals and runoff from the Verizon plant, and then its soul toils in uncertainty as it becomes a noxious, poisonous gas. That's what it's like sometimes, living in New York, toiling away, not sure what will become of it all. And that's what we're discussing on this episode tonight, work and clash. Now, while my labor to become more mystically attuned continues, you should know that I come from a working-class background. Now, there were years spent below the poverty line, and most of the time we simply couldn't afford a vacation beyond a weekend spent two towns over at a flea market full of other people's stuff. But I treasured those days, and it certainly has shaped me. And also, you better believe I know the proper pricing on a shaker table. Today on the program, I stashed a lapis lazuli stone in my front pocket and settled in for some real talk with writer and storyteller Tara Clancy. I've enjoyed Tara's many appearances on story shows throughout New York City. She's a regular on The Moth, and her writing has been featured in The New York Times, The Rumpus, and The Paris Review Daily. Yes, Tara is a fifth-generation New Yorker, a third-generation bartender. Now, last week with Sovereign Sire, we talked about the many different jobs required to manifest a creative vision and that back-against-the-wall moment that pushes one to pursue an artistic path. Tara has had a few moments like that. In her creative and personal work, she speaks up with great passion for the working-class women in New York City, whose stories are not often told. Her new book, which I encourage you to purchase as soon as it comes out on October 11th, mark it down, is called The Clancy's of Queens. Now, if you prefer an audiobook, why not go to audibletrial.com slash Radio and sign up for a free 30-day trial and select The Clancy's of Queens as read by Tara Clancy, because really, who else could do it? With more than 180,000 audio titles to choose from, you're sure to find one you like on audible.com. It'll probably be Tara's, let's be honest, but you never know. If you prefer guided meditation, they have those too, or books on auras, or snakes, you name it. Put a book in your ear. It's still not their slogan, but I'm using it. All right, well now let's go to my conversation with the talented Tara Clancy. Tara Clancy. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Hello. It's thrilling to finally meet you. I'm so happy you're here in this hot little room. And is it ever going to get cool? Uh, no, it's nev- <laughs> never. We're, this we're, is it. We're done. We're done for. Just doing this. It's, uh, it's intense a little bit, so I apologize. Uh, for my own uh, profuse sweating, but uh, we're going to get through it, and you're a cool customer, so we're going to be okay. Let me ask you this. Uh, in your marriage, is one person uh, a designated bug killer? 
Yes. And who who is that? That is not me. That is my <laughs> wife, um, which people find surprising because I'm I'm you know the dikey, scarier looking one, and uh, she is the person who wear you know wears four inch heels to grocery shop. But I will throw her down in front of a cockroach and say, "Take her, not me," and run away. Well, that's this. Uh, this uh, I bring it up because it's fresh in my mind. My, uh, I, I woke up. I had the alarm set to come in and talk with you, but I woke up before the alarm with a great bang. I thought, my gosh, what's going on? And I saw my wife there standing, and there was a, a book on the floor. And she said, "Oh, it's the largest uh, roach I've ever seen." <laughs> I thought, "Well, okay, that's uh, now." She you have to understand that she is um, uh, uh, very uh, in tune with things, and I don't know if it's her blood type or her or her, her powerful work with energies of the cosmos, but she attracts <laughs> all the bugs. We go on a walk in the woods. She looks down. There's a she's walked through a nest of spiders. Her whole leg is covered in spiders. Oh my God! Uh, and uh, mosquitoes all the time. Oh. Uh, uh, she hates bugs. That is the thing. She does not <laughs> like these, but she is efficient at seeing them, spotting them, attracting them, and uh, killing them. Now, the other piece to this is that a few weeks ago, she had asked me to go and uh, buy her a book at, uh, at the Barnes & Noble. Mm. And I said, well, what kind of thing do you want? I don't know. Uh, she, she said, well, a mystery, something like that. So I pick out a very perfectly good book, Victorian era, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The, the devil or something is coming into it. <laughs> I thought, well, that sounds fun. And anyhow... <laughs> All the books that we have in there, she has 15 copies of Jane Eyre, all these books that we have in the life, she picks this book, which she was not happy to receive, <laughs> I will tell you, and hasn't read. All the books she used that to squash and leave there, and then I had to clean it up. Ugh. Ugh. It wasn't that big, though. I also, I also, I've seen bigger. You've seen bigger. I've seen bigger. Yeah. But uh, I, I said, do you want me to just throw out the book? Is that... <laughs> Is that it? I don't care for bugs either. But um, could you give me one of your famous all rights, the way you begin so many of your stories? Oh, man. All right. (laughs) All right. There we go. All right. Do you know that I didn't know that that was a thing amongst... New Yorkers, native New Yorker people with accents or and who tell stories. Like I don't know if you know Steve the cop from the moth, but he does that same thing. It's something I'm completely unconscious of. Like I don't know why like, I step to a mic and then I go, All right, you know. <laughs> there it is. All right, we're gonna get going. Uh, it really just uh, buckle yeah. up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I guess there's worse things you could say. But now uh, it might be hard to tell for the listener at home, but you're a native New Yorker. That's correct, that, yes. That, if that's if you thought I was from Savannah, you know, well, Georgia Bell, you are incorrect. You're mistaken. And you have a new book uh, that's coming out, uh, yes. uh, the, the Clancy's of Queens. That's right. Is what it's called. Now, I've not read it. I've not seen it. But uh, just going on intuition, I imagine there's some kind of commentary on class. And yes. the divisions are therein? Yes. Um, yes. So the Clancy's of Queens. Um, yeah. And you haven't read it because it's not out yet. It comes out on October 11th. Um, October 11th. But yes, it is about class. Um, and I you know, I guess I could go on and on about this. But it's, it's you know, it's basically about me you know, growing up, working class, Queens, uh, 95% of, of the time. And then the other 5% of the time, um, my... Mother, when my, after my parents divorced, my mother was the cleaning lady for this very, very wealthy man, uh, and they ended up falling in love. Uh, well, and, well let's, let's go through it a little bit. Yeah, we'll go uh, through uh, it. Because, uh, take me back. Now, you're, you're growing up where? Astoria? No. Queens? Oh, my God. Always with the Astoria. I don't know. The, I don't know where you're from, but always people are <laughs> like, Queen, Astoria, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, what, Sunnyside? I up, no. Um, I grew up... <laughs> <laughs> in Belrose, do you know where that is? No, no. I have no idea. And Broad Channel, oh, so Broad two Channel places. I've one heard of. you have, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. I don't know why, but I maybe because I saw of you, it on the map. when you drove to Rockaway Beach, because you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> I do like the sand. Uh-huh. So yeah, both of those are yeah, like the kind of far flung eastern reaches of Queens, which are not cool or or any of that shit it's like archie bunker queens does that help <laughs> yeah it does because i think my whole uh, idea of what it is like to grow up in the city is determined by the opening credits of various television shows so if it's like sesame street and the kids <laughs> running around that's what i thought it would be like to for a, ch- a child in the city or the opening credits to fat albert though mm-hmm. i don't know how many junkyards were out there in broad channel but uh, t- archie bunker i kind of had no sense of what that was it was just the fly that just the 
yeah. row houses and things, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it junk, nice. I actually did have a junkyard play yard. So in front of my house in Broad Channel <laughs> was an empty lot that people put their old cars in, my huh. father included. His, which I actually love this car, Carmen Ghia. Oh, sure. Oh, my God. It was beautiful, but it yeah. like had rusted out. And it was this was our playground was these old cars, which was like perfect and amazing and, and great. And what age um, is that that you're playing around in the cars? So that was, yeah, two, uh, two, I don't know, it wasn't by myself at two, but I lived there at age two, so probably by like five. It was like, right, you could throw yeah. a rock from the from my front door to and, the And you'd just be let loose in there? Yeah. Playing the old cars? Sure, you know, but I don't mean, know, maybe six, seven years old when you sure. were like really out playing. I got kids, I'm like, would I let my kid go play in the car lot? Oh shit, I'm, I'm bougie now, because my instinct is no. Uh, That's going to be the next thing, though. The next, uh... They had a whole installation at Governor's Island, like a trash, like trash heap. Let your kids go play in the trash heap. <laughs> I'm telling you. I've come full circle. <laughs> I'll right. be that asshole there on, like, the Saturday afternoon. <laughs> Are you still enjoy cars? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, you, I don't know. Yeah, I enjoy cars. I mean, I don't, you know, I got a... I got kids, so I got go like a car kid shows and things. Car. No, I don't go to. I don't okay. go to car shows. You have a car. I have a car. Oh. I have a Honda CRV. Oh, join the club. Huh? Sexy. Uh, me too. It's very practical. <laughs> yes, it has. Mine has two hundred thousand miles on it. <laughs> I shit you not. My cousin. Thank you to my cousin Victor in New Jersey, who keeps care of that. He works for Honda Jersey. And he uh, keeps my car in good shape. Ah, very, mm -hmm. very yeah, nice. You're out there, Victor. We'll, we'll post a link on the site <laughs> <laughs> for him. Uh, that's good. I have that, and I have an '89 Chrysler LeBaron. Oh, really? It just, uh, just hums right along. Huh. <laughs> we do a lot. Well, do you go out though? Do you, do you go uh, driving with it? Yeah, no, I just look at it. <laughs> yes, I drive well, I mean, in my car. You get away for things. So, uh, and. Uh, so you're out there, you're in the in the junkyard. Uh, at what point did the, the parents split up? My parents divorced it too. So my father oh, my father grew early. up in Broad Channel. So he returned. I, I was born in Rosedale, Rosedale, another part you don't know in Queens. It's near yeah. JFK. All of this stuff is near JFK. That's what I always end up saying. <laughs> near JFK. Right. Uh, so I was born in Rosedale. My parents split. My, my father goes to Broad Channel, which is where he had grown up. And my mother went to Belrose. Uh, my mother grew up in Brooklyn, but that is where... They, my grandparents wound up. They left Brooklyn and moved to Queens, which is, you know, it's like you're trying to get to the suburbs. That's the that's the dream. You grow up in Brooklyn. You grow up in the Bronx, right? And you're trying right. to get to Long Island or Jersey. And so I sort of have called Queens like white flight with a layover, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you didn't quite get Almost there. You got a little yeah. stuck. Get a little stuck. <laughs> And uh, were you then split time between the, yes. the two? The so two? it's just you, time. or there's uh, other siblings? No, nope. I'm an only child. Isn't uh, that the best? It is. It was the best. It was great. And so I lived with my father uh, in a very tiny house that kind of looked like a trailer, but it was actually a boat shed that oh. people had converted into like a little, maybe 250, 300 square foot house. And then my mother lived with my grandparents. So it was like one of those multi-family, very classic New York Italian things. You know, my grandparents were upstairs. We were downstairs. Yeah. And you, you benefited from that. You learned from some stories. and Oh, that. man. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that strikes me about listening to the stories and reading the things that you write... There's a vividness there and an attention to detail. Were you aware of being an attentive child? Were you given praise for being a good listener or that kind of a thing? No. My God, fuck no. <laughs> a good listener? Wait till you read the book. You're going to be like, please let my kid not turn out to be Tara Clancy. Uh, I, was, I was a disaster. But I, you know what? I, I did. I mean, I was born also in like bars, local bars in New York. I'm a third generation bartender. And so I think... Uh. You know, when you're born in a bar, like being able to tell a good story, it's like being born eight foot tall and being able to play a little basketball, <laughs> right? Like it's just that was that that was my innate, you know. So who gift. was the bartender? Your mother was a bartender. Uh, my mother was at my family bar, which is in was in Manhattan. Um, yeah, and then my great grandfather had a restaurant. All my aunts and uncles worked there. So we are restaurant bar industry since like turn the this century like wow. 1910 i think yeah that's that's amazing yeah and uh, what kind of place was it my great-grandfather's place was in uh, italian like very classic trattoria like no menus i don't know if you ever 
may have been in these are old this is an old school thing that almost doesn't exist anymore so you uh-huh. would go in one of my great uncles would come up to you and be like we got chicken we got porgies you know what do you want like that was then you just were given things so it's just like plain little you know little like ch- red checkered tablecloths very very simple pasta. but a little pasta yeah. you know little and and what i love though is this i actually like said this in my i didn't realize this till i wrote my book but my grandfather's restaurant the name of it was the El Dorado. Oh. Huh? Yeah. Now, I thought to myself, like, here is this kind of, you know, hole-in-the-wall joint with red checker tablecloths. <laughs> Let's name it after the mythical South American city of gold. You know, like, <laughs> one, which wasn't Italian. <laughs> but two, I started realizing that every other, it, like, immigrants do this, and I love them for it. Like, you know, like, you'll go to that, like, crappy Chinese takeout place, but it's called the Great Wall 2. Right. You're like, well, <laughs> you know, or like they enjoying like Taj Mahal. You know, well, this, we're in Queens and this is a crappy place with right. card tables and fluorescent lights, you know? <laughs> but there's aspirations, there's there, dreams yeah. out there. So my grandpa well, was part of that great tradition. <laughs> And uh, then your your mother's, you said it was a family bar? Yeah, so my that's my mother's. So first there's the restaurant, then my Uncle Sal, uh, Uncle Sal. who is just everything you think an Uncle Sal would be. Uh, basically, you know, like the Fonz, he opened a bar. <laughs> that's not what I was thinking. You were not thinking? I wasn't thinking the Fonz. I, don't, I thought maybe a bigger oh, a bigger guy. No. Um, was, but that's but cool. Cool. He was cool. cool. He was All cool. Right. Uh, he opened a bar with a couple guys uh, in the West Village in like 83, and my mother worked there. Uh, and then I worked there um, when as soon as I turned 21. Um, so. was the guy, wasn't the guy that owned the diner named Sal? In happy days? What Probably. Was? He should have been if he wasn't. <laughs> That's why I think of it. But I have to uh, realign. That's why. Sorry. So you said then your mother had the... Had the... My mother worked there, then I yeah, worked there. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is it still there? No. It is still there, but it's not owned by my family anymore. Are we allowed to say what it's called? It's called Barrow's Pub. Barrow's Pub. And uh, English Pub? Uh, no, because we're Italians. What the fuck would you guess that for? It was just like a, it was a very local, you know, it was an interesting place. <laughs> it sounds like an English pub. Barrow is the name of the street, babe. Oh, okay. Barrow Street okay. in the West Village and, uh, and Hudson oh, is right on the corner. Just geogra- geography. Geography. That's it. We weren't that original. You know, if it had been on Third Street, it would have been like Third Pub. <laughs> right. That's how <laughs> innovative we are. Uh, you know. I, I, but it's wonderful that you're connected to that other uh, these other generations and to go back so long too. It's mm-hmm. a, to have such a a deep history in a place is is um, I feel like that's rare. I don't know yeah. I, more and more. And I miss that generation of I miss grandparents. Oh, me too. I miss that you know stale cigarette smoke <laughs> and uh, cocktail after mm-hmm. after work and to put on a bad jacket to mm-hmm. eat at the country club mm-hmm. kind of thing. Furniture that hasn't been reupholstered, mm. you know, it's still, but it's still a little bit out. Yeah. But it's okay. Yeah, you just go with it. Um, your stories are a way of activating some of those memories, though. You feel that active? I mean, yeah, do you feel that. Yeah, thanks. I do. Um, I do, and I really loved. So, like, I not only lived with my grandparents, but they happened to live next door to two other elderly Italian couples. I mean, so it was just like an accident, but it was like this commune of Brooklyn Italians, which is to say. You know, paradise. I mean, it was <laughs> heaven, and I miss them, and I, uh, I love going up there. And it's, I, I think it's probably my favorite part of my book is that those chapters, and I call them the the geriatrics of Two Fifty First Street. <laughs> you, I think you might like that part. <laughs> I'll give it. I gotta flag it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hard candies. Yes. Oh, oh, there's a whole thing about the hard candies. I can't believe you brought it up. I was like growing up there. I was like, you know, by the age of 10, like I had developed a serious affinity for sugar-free butterscotch. (laughs) Um, You know, and and my normal speaking voice was a good 10 times louder than anybody else under 75. My neighbors had a big, just a big glass bowl, probably Uh a punch bowl or something Mm -hmm. that they may have gotten for their wedding. And it was just full. Oh, mm-hmm. there was just the two of them, and full of those hard candies, root beer barrels, mm-hmm. and the butterscotch. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was sugar free. Sometimes you get a red hot one <laughs> of those cinnamon mm-hmm. ones, uh, and um, those pink ones that tasted 
like um, Pepto Bismol oh, chalk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, what are the, and Mike Mike and Ike's or the, no like the. I, you know, well, the funny thing for me, too, is that I was not allowed to eat those candies when we went to any <laughs> of our neighbors' houses because my grandmother, who had grown up like Depression era Brooklyn, w- even in the, the late 1980s, was like she was so paranoid that people would think that we didn't have enough to eat. And so she would say to me as a kid, like, we're going to go for, you know, for, tonight we're going for cards at Tina's. We're going to play cards at Tina's. If she says to you, here, have a candy, you say, no, I'm full. I eat. What do you think? I don't eat. Something like that. And I'm like, but I just, but it's, it's a candy, you know? And she, like as if someone would really, think, as if that candy bowl you described, as if that was like yes. a booby trap right. meant, you know, to, to, to like reveal uh-huh. if you were malnourished, you know? <laughs> the kid must be starving, you know? She ate a butterscotch. Uh, I, I was not really allowed to have that many sugary things. Mm. Um, because uh, my mother was caught up in the, the health craze, and so mm. a lot of wheat germ oh. was around. And one score bar, you remember those? I sure <laughs> do. I guess they still have them, but the one score bar that she would keep in the fridge, in the butter section of the fridge, mm-hmm. and just slowly <laughs> eat that over, <laughs> over the course of many weeks. <laughs> ah, but none of that sugar cereal, any of that kind of stuff. Oh, Forget it. awful. And so, okay, so then... Uh, uh, at what point does she start? Uh, she's working at the bar. Yes. Your mother. Yes. And she takes the cleaning position. Yeah. So, my mother was actually a social worker. My mother was the second female ever to graduate high school in the history of her family, and the first and only person to go to college. Uh, she became a social worker, and she had a really rough job. It was Brooklyn in the 70s in Bushwick, and she worked with girls and gangs and, and addicts and stuff, and uh, it was heavy. Yeah. And when she got pregnant with me, some awful things happened to some of her clients, and she was like, I need a break from this. Like, I cannot raise a kid and be this, you know, depressed and intense at my job, so I'm going to take a little break. So she did two things. One was she started bartending in my uncle's bar, but then parents were kind of going to split and this friend of theirs said you know I got I know this guy he needs a cleaning lady and believe it or not the job was better pay than her job as a social worker I believe it right Uh, and so she's like great you know sign me up Uh, and she starts cleaning this guy's apartment and she doesn't meet him she would just go in and the doorman or whatever would let her in and it was this like duplex and it was filled with antiques and it was filled with artwork and so she would clean and just sort of like imagine like who is this person and he also like seemed cool like he didn't seem like he just had some decorator come in and like do it seemed like these things were things he loved she started to kind of be really intrigued and she cleaned his apartment for a year mm-hmm. um, before she ever met him and one day he had like left a whole bunch of pan, pots and pans dirty in the in the sink, and he left her a note to apologize. Like he was like, "I'm sorry, I'm taking an Indian cooking class, and I'm experimenting like mad." Now my mother is from Brooklyn, Uncle Sal, and you know, God, <laughs> yes. she's like, "Who the hell is this guy?" Like she never, you know, like an Indian cooking class. So eventually, uh, he needed somebody to like do some more, like kind of secretarial work for him she takes a job she still never met him uh she gets hired to do the job and she meets him um for the first time on the road working as like his administrative assistant and they and they quickly hit it off and then they you think he was planning that i know no actually no. no um and uh and they quickly hit it off and then as soon as they started dating she was like i can't work for you anymore and so she went back to bartending and waiting tables at another Restaurant because she didn't she didn't want to be in his employ. She was dating him. And was there a new cleaning lady? I, I imagine there was. <laughs> That's a tough thing about falling in love with your cleaning lady. Is you, you're down one cleaning. You're down lady. a cleaning lady. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never thought of that. You. That's true. That's true. Well, but, I hope she was efficient. Yeah. <laughs> the, the next one. Oh. And. Um, so so they then become become uh, so they slowly become you know a more and more serious couple but here's the fun little snag or the little sort of i don't know i don't want to say it's a subversion of the Cinderella story but my mom was like I said you know she was this first person ever to go to college and so she was very proud to have a job have a career she didn't come from women who had done that and so she did not want the knight in shining armor Cinderella bullshit she was like I want to be keep working and uh, so I don't I'm not interested in you coming in here and paying my bills and, and getting me a new place and so we continued living in my grandparents basement as they dated for years 
Um, and she also was kind of like had been married before. So it was like, you know, been there, done that, didn't work, don't want to get married again. And so they just decided to have this this relationship that was a weekend relationship. And so I always lived in Queens. We always lived in Queens. But on a Friday night, I might be picked up from PS 133 in a stretch limo and taken to LaGuardia and flown by private plane to his mansion in the Hamptons. Pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Beats the bus. It sure does. Now, uh, he was married before? He was married before. So too. he was also not interested in. Yeah, they were both divorced. They had, yeah. And what did he do? Uh, he was like a he was a business consultant guy. He was a yeah. total self made guy too. He was he was like a guy that came from little mill town and and family had worked in the paper mill. And he was this guy that slowly climbed the ladder and and then eventually was like this business consultant genius for Fortune fifty companies. That's what you need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you, <clears throat> what do the other kids think um, when you're getting into yeah, the limo? This is interesting. I I. I <laughs> Most of them didn't really question me too much. First of all, it was every other weekend, right? One when I was going with my dad back uh-huh, to the, the uh-huh. trailer and Broad Channel. So it was every other weekend, and it wasn't always, I wasn't always picked up by limo. It wasn't right. like, but, you know, so I think like the one or two times I have any memory of a kids would be like, wow, is that, a, you know, is that here for you? And I'd be like, yeah, bye. And that was it. Right. Because I was in every other way, just like like anybody else. But... Some of my friends did eventually come with me. So, like, my best friend, Esther, started coming with me, like, at, you know, age eight or nine. So it would be, like, the two of us in the back of this stretch limousine, you know, like, doing hand games, like City Kid, Patty Cake, like, really raunchy, you know. Uh, <laughs> went to the store, get a stick of butter, saw Jay's Brown sitting in the gutter, took a piece of glass, shoved it up his ass, never seen a motherfucker run so fast. Rock and Robin, you know. Sure, that, that probably happens in stretch limousines <laughs> all the time, right? I'm, yeah, I'm sure the yeah. driver was At just least used on the, to that. On the jitney, yeah, <laughs> I think you can hear that. <laughs> so, uh, what? What did her name was Esther? Esther. Esther. Uh, her parents were like, okay, sounds sounds great. Shit, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, they were like, a similar uh, kind of economic. Totally, level. yeah. She was kind of like her, you know, like working class Jewish. I mean, her mom was was a teacher, single mom of four on a New York City public school teacher salary um so everybody was like go go get it you know (laughs) go get it kids um (laughs) now was that it when before esther was going Mm -hmm. was it at all awkward as the only child you know when you're an only child you become a kind of third yeah uh, piece of the of the triumph what do you call it (laughs) of the shape the leg of the stool (laughs) i don't know you become a third person involved in the relationship um was it uh, weird were you what were you doing no no it was great i mean because when you're an only child you're used to playing by yourself no matter where you are you could be in a mansion or a boat you know or a trailer and you're just by yourself with a couple of like he-mans if you're a little dyke i don't know i guess my little pony if you're more (laughs) traditional but i so i was I, I had like a little routine in this house. I had I I I they, you know I just had this I had this little I had a little Fisher Price four by four. Do you know those like Power oh, Wheels? Yeah. Do you yeah. remember this Power Wheels? Right, yeah. it's a little 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 thing. And so uh, uh, Mark, that was my mother's boyfriend's name, bought me one that looked like a like a badass pickup truck yeah. naturally because I didn't want like the Barbie <laughs> pink one. Right. And I would drive it around this like estate. It was like three things. There was a croquet court. There was a pool. There was there was like three. And I'd be like like a little Ricky Schroeder. Yeah. <laughs> was there a train around the property? Yeah. <laughs> no, but it was. It's, it's a good. That's a good. That's a good. That's a good one. It was like, yeah, it was me. It was like it might. It could have been. It was me and my little little dyke pickup truck um, going like all around the perimeter, and yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a great time. It was a great time. <laughs> it was like my whole thing, and I think. I called my memoir. It was a joke, but now it's kind of stuck. I was like, it's the anti-misery memoir, right? Like, I, because when people are like, here is this key person who drew up in a trailer and working class Queens, and you're a, a you're a dyke. It's like you're supposed to die, right? Like in every other movie thing, you die, dyke. You like butch looking dyke. You you're dead. Trailer dead, right? For me, it was like you know, I just had the best time. I had a great, I had a great life and a lot of fun, you know. So. Uh, were you a good kid uh, at the time too? I mean, I mean, I was like... a kid who got in a whole lot of trouble, a yeah. whole lot of trouble. But I wasn't a bad 
kid. I was a clown. I was a class clown. I wasn't like the, like a nasty kid. I was just a clown, you know? So, so maybe goofing off a little bit. Oh, shit, yeah. You should have been paying attention to your studies. Exactly. Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, when you're out in the Hamptons, was there any, I mean, you kind of mostly contained at the compound, or are you going yes. out among the nautical stripes and casual no, sweaters? No, yeah, that's another interesting thing. It was very insular. So he, because he was this self-made guy, he's he his friends eventually became like my family. Like he didn't have some like, you know, Muffy and Buffy and whoever hanging out. It was like my <laughs> Italian family, literally Uncle Sal, became his best friend. Mark's best friend. So we, and this is another chapter in the book, like he would fly my whole family to his house for these yearly summer parties. So it was very, I wasn't out and about in the Hamptons. And so I, you know, I, I knew him and I knew this house and that was, and that was it. If you go, you go out there now. No. Take the Honda out. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. And uh, then, then what happened? The romance just faded? Between uh, oh, they were together for twenty-two years. That's a, that's a pretty decent. That's amount a pretty of time. decent amount of time. That's a marriage. Yeah, that that is. It was definitely. It was three times as long as my parents. So <laughs> it was a very long time. And the, but he just uh, kind of supported uh, your mother and you. No, no questions. Just. Not financially. No. Um, no. 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 My mother was not interested in that. No. No. She was. My mother paid our own bills and. and, and Buy dinner, probably, and dinner. fly out. And dinner, come to my house, all that, but not, like, pay my bills. No. My mother was not. And I love that. And that was, that's a, you know, a big part of this, is that my mother was like, I don't want it. Because basically she was like, if, if you take somebody's money, you have to take their advice. Right? <laughs> and yeah, when it came okay. to raising me, she wanted to do it her way. She did not want another cook in the kitchen. You know, my dad was very involved. She split custody. Yeah. She was like, so... We'll take, we'll come to your house and we'll have dinner. And of course, all those things. And, you know, there were vacations. There was Christmas gifts, but it wasn't like he paid our bills. I grew up in Queens and didn't leave. Yeah. And uh, you you, um, you still have contact with him or no? Uh, I do. I did. And then he passed away. Oh, I'm Just sorry. a couple years sorry ago. That's okay. That. He knew about the book. He was excited oh, about it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's great. Um, uh, do you miss that? Do I miss him? Well, him, I imagine yes. you do. But uh, that lifestyle or going out there, I don't know what you do yeah. now. But I, uh... um, you know, no, but I, I mean, I just, I miss, I miss him. Uh, he was sort of like a mentor to me, and he really changed my life, not at all because of money, but because of how he spoke to me. And a lot of my friends from Queens, when we were teenagers, we would go out there, and uh, he would just spend hours and hours having these really long conversations with us, and it, it really changed us. It really made us think, like, wow, we, it's more to us than we know. Yeah. There's more, you know, and, and, um, I could get I could get Mushy talking about this, but you know he really that really so I miss that. Uh, but right. I have no interest in yeah going to like Hampton <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> right. No, but it's uh, it's important that somebody supports us and yeah. sees us and, and uh, talks to us as people. Yes, <laughs> that's that's it. it. You know if that that's the like there is a shared humanity among the classes you know there is and like and if we when we just getting together and just talking is sometimes enough you, you don't need me to come and pay and sweep my off my feet and put me to a private school or any of that shit but just talking to me right you know makes this huge difference absolutely um and so uh when does the idea of telling stories come into it. It sounds like you were always surrounded mm-hmm. by it. You were steeped in it. Yeah. It uh, you were in situations where that was a kind of currency, yeah. uh, as well as um, a mode of real communication and history telling. And, and you have such there is such history to tell. Yeah. So, uh, at what point does it uh, become like, oh, I can do this as a thing? As a thing, um, that's interesting. I, you know, so I, I went to college and I had no intention of doing any performing or any writing or any of that shit. I studied Shakespeare, um, and I was well, sort of headed for a life in, in academia. And then that is writing and performing. Uh, well, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess, but it was I, you know, I, I was going to sort of be the person writing the things that nobody reads that remain in <laughs> academia, right? So I then, but I took this like playwriting class because it's related uh, you know kind of uh, just for the hell of it or almost at the end of college and I ended up loving that and then people what they loved and they were almost you know completely autobiographical you know even though I was writing plays and I got out of college and was like great I, what the fuck am I gonna do now and I started writing radio plays uh-huh. because that's a way to make a living that's really in 2002 <laughs> 
Amazing that it has come back, though. I mean, in 2002, there was really nothing. But now, yeah. you, you're almost like there's been this resurgence. But whatever. So I'm writing fucking radio plays. I'm working at my the family coconuts. bar. The coconuts. For, for the horse, <laughs> horse, the horse clopping. <laughs> the oh, creaking shit. of doors and shoes. <laughs> so I do that, and then I... Well, you actually did the radio plays, though? I was writing radio plays. But, uh, well, writing them, uh, but then No, I wasn't you, producing was them. Was anything getting out there? It was not, because what happened pretty quickly was if somebody said to me, you know, I love the character in your plays that's most based on you, which is always like a bartender from Queens, <laughs> and you should try performing some of these monologues. And I was like, what? And so somebody signed me up to do like an open mic, and I, w- I literally stood on stage with a notebook, and I read a monologue, and they, this artistic director of the theater was like, I think you got something. And you, I, I was good. And I was like, yeah. And they, I was like, I've never performed before in my life. And they were like, I, you should write like a, a little solo show thing, which at that time I felt like there wasn't a perif- proliferation of. There wasn't a lot of them. And I was yeah. kind of, but I was a Spalding Gray fan. So I was like, let me do that. And so that's how I started officially telling stories. So I wrote a bunch of solo shows and they were produced and. I made five cents, and that was great. <laughs> <laughs> now, with Spalding Gray, did you encounter him in college? I No, I never encountered him personally. No, I mean, I mean oh, his you mean, work. Oh, his work. How did you come in contact with the work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, in college. Yeah, so I mean, in Cambodia, and, you know, and I met a friend who was really into his work, and we he ended up directing my solo shows, um, and... And that was it. But then, you know, you do these solo shows and you get into these little fringe festivals and you do all this stuff and you're like, this is great, but I've made no money. Like, yes. I, you can't start there. So I kind of took a break. I, I was like, let me figure out, am I a writer? Am I a performer? Am I a comic? Like, what the fuck am I? Um, and I took a break. And in that break, I got, like, married and, and, and had children. And then I was like, all right, I think I'm a writer first. And so I started trying to write these stories. And at the same time, the moth had kind of gotten big. And so while I was writing stories to be published, I was also just going out to the moth like with my wife. Like we'd get a babysitter, we'd go. And just I started, to attend. Just to attend. With and no idea of participating? Well, I, I put th- my name in the hat, oh, okay. you know. And I put my name in the hat and at an op- one of the moth open mic things. And, uh, and I, you know, I got called and I told a story. Um, and that started that. I want to come back to that. Okay. But uh, I want to just identify one thing with Spalding Gray that is interesting to me that you would bring him up is because when reading his work or even seeing it, I mean, you could tell he might be a little bit prickly and he had a lot of stuff going on, mm-hmm. but there was always a, a, an invitation uh, into into what was going on with him and a sense that you wanted to reach out and kind of just like give the guy a hug or just be like, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. There was some ability to communicate his uh, what was going on for him in his inner life that uh, powerfully connected, I think, with an audience, even just reading it, mm-hmm. you could do it. And I think that's something that you have as well. Uh, so it's interesting to me that you would be, you'd mention him uh, because there's a, an ability to be open um, with, with yourself that is immediately um, interesting and uh, attractive for the listener or participant in it. So uh, interesting you. that you would uh, connect to him. I see some connections to your work. Uh, you take a break. Yes. You get married. Yes. How, how long of a break is this? That, then you also have two <laughs> I know. kids. Um, let's see. So it was, I got I got married, which, like, in Manhattan is young, 26. So I got married at 26. Yeah. I had had a show, I had had a show at the Fringe of 2005. So I got married that next year. Yeah. And we start thinking about having kids and, and, and stuff, and which for lesbians is, like, a longer period of time. You're like, how could it be this long? You decide you want a baby. You have a margarita. You get a baby. No. Right. For us, it's like, we've got to raise $20,000, you know. Right, um, right. So that took time. It's always just, you Were you know. working during that time? Yeah. Yeah. I was bartending. Okay. I, then, um, I was also tour guiding. I was, I was a tour guide on the double-decker buses. I think you'd be good at that. I was pretty fucking good at that, <laughs> I will say. I got you no You get to shame. go through Queens and show the... I went. This is actually a good story. That's exactly what I, I was. That is exactly what I did. I had a driver. So I did the Brooklyn route. It's the only one where it doesn't. You don't have stop and go. It's just uh-huh. three like straight hours to go through Brooklyn. And so I started. I wrote like a basically a three hour monologue. And so it was filled with not only like architectural history and all that shit, but all personal history. And people were eating it up. And the drivers all want to work with me because I made the most tips. And so you'd split it. Yeah. So we kind of kept upping the ante. And at some point we changed the route. It was completely illegal. Um, to go down the block when my mother grew up, 
down the block where my grandmother grew up, stop in front of the house, and I tell all these you know stupid stories and do impressions of my grandmother, and we were like killing it, like we were like <laughs> raking in the dough. <laughs> Would you consider doing that with the book tour? I guess they actually asked me about that at some point. And I was like, you know, yeah, sure, I'll get everybody on the well, bus and do that again. And uh, yeah, yeah, I let, love that. So let me know. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So that happened. So that happens. So I was bartending and tour guiding and just trying to bank some dough. And then my wife and I, so married at twenty six, and then we got pregnant when I was twenty nine. Okay. With the first, With my child. first son. Uh, two, you have two boys. I have two boys. Yeah. It is um, the universe's little joke on the lesbians. <laughs> but uh, they're doing okay. So you don't like penises, <laughs> huh? Right. Ah, ah. Here's a couple. You're going to be scrubbing balls for the next five years. Uh, you know, I only had a, a, a part in raising my niece's daughter, uh, uh, Pepsi. But uh, I was always concerned when I saw the the other uh, uh, people out there who had sons, mm-hmm. and with the with the wildness of the of the Willie mm-hmm. uh, and uh, things coming out of that, just uh, <laughs> seemed like too much. You had to put a little tent over it or something. I, I, I couldn't. I don't know. <laughs> yes. a, a girl was enough. <laughs> uh, the, the other business seemed like yeah, that's just too many moving. Parts, that kind of a thing. Um, uh, and so uh, during that time, uh, then you, you, you uh, decide to check in on the moth. You've yep. had the life experiences of, of being married for a little bit yep. and for going through these uh, mm-hmm. two. Uh, both children were born during that time? No. So the first one was born. I'm, I when I become a stay-at-home mom, and I am sort of can do things on the weekends, like tour guiding and stuff. But, you know, I become the stay-at-home mom for a couple of years. And in that time, it was great because I got to raise my kid. But I also was like, all right, let's figure out what we want to do. And so I started you know, thinking about writing. So I published a piece. uh, I published my first essay. And then literally like a week at the exact same time, my wife and I get a babysitter from my like then, you know, two-year-old son. And I go to the moth and I put my name in the hat. And uh, that started a little run for me with the moth. Yeah. And you loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Had you been to storytelling things before? Um, I had. I mean, I had done these solo shows. Right, so it wasn't right. like I had never been in right. front of a microphone before, but I had not, you know, I hadn't done this storytelling five minute thing. And I love that having to like craft it so short. And, and I thought that was fun. And so, you know, I do, I did this moth thing and I won it. And I had no idea what that <laughs> meant that there was this world of that. I'm like, oh, great. You know, um, but then that kind of started me on this run. So then, you, you know, if you win. Then you go to the Grand Slam, and then, you know, and then you go, and then I won that, and then, you know, so suddenly I was kind of doing, I was into it, you know. Yeah, you're in the mix. I was in the mix. <laughs> and you're appearing as, that's, I think, probably when I uh, took notice of, of you around town, because you were doing a lot of, and you yeah. still do, a lot of storytelling shows, and your name was mm-hmm. appearing here and there and everywhere. One of the stories that I think I, I recall was about um, how you started to think about all the ways in which uh, things had to align for you to be in the place where you are uh, and this kind of like theory of, of how the world works mm-hmm. and you got kind of because I'm in, interested in all that and mm-hmm. the energies around mm-hmm. us and mystical thinking and also science but uh, you, you discovered string theory or something it, oh, am, I, am, wow. I, am I correct in this? Yeah I, <laughs> I didn't know you were pulling that one out of the hat ah! Um, yeah, yeah, I became obsessed with, uh, theoretical physics, like all bartenders from Queens. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I became obsessed with theoretical physics, and, uh, I, I, I still am, it's like my hobby, like I read books, I, like, think I know shit, but I do not know shit, uh, but I, like, joined the New York Academy of Sciences, and I would go to wow. lectures, and I was, like, I got really, I got really into it. So what do you think now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's. I mean, look, I mean, there are people out there trying to figure out a theory of everything, I and mean, yes. that's like a real thing. It's like I don't know what I want for lunch, <laughs> and there's a theory of everything. You know, it's yeah. great. It's. I feel. I said. Well, I don't know. I think if, if I said it in that story, but I was like, my thing. My favorite thing about theoretical physics is that it's like you can distract yourself from reality. With reality. <laughs> well, now there's this also this theory where it's all a simulation. Yeah. That we're some uh, higher beings, uh, uh, sim, Sims game or whatever. Yeah, sure. 
But, you know, not that one. I is can't spend too much time on that No, no, theory. yeah, that theory I was going to say is not. Because then who, it doesn't matter. Yeah, 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 that if one the, is, that maybe not. they're so advanced to design everything that's going on and this becomes my reality, well, what are we, yeah. oh, I care if I'm a, a hologram, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and a lot of people, I mean, and with that one and then just this feeling of like, oh, you're, you know, we're so small and we're a blip on a blip and a lot of people find that like discomforting, right? Yes. Like I, they, I, I'm the opposite. I think that's great. I'm like, you know, like I, that makes me very happy, you know, that like, I am absolutely nothing. Like you know the thing in the cosmos with the with Carl Sagan where yeah. they like lay out all of time, you know, and he's like yes, walking the on that the cosmic calendar, yeah. and then it gets to that last thing, and he's like this. Basically, I'm like New Year's Eve. Like you know, we would be all of what happened in like the 10 second countdown, right? right? And some people are terrified by that. Like I have not everything's meaningless. I think it's fucking great. <laughs> you know what else I think is true? Hmm. There's always been. Um, uh, assholes, pardon my language, yes. but I think even going back throughout time, you know, history is written and it's embellished and things get, but you know there was some jerk in the cave, mm-hmm. you know, oh gosh, here comes Grunk, just, <laughs> just ixnay on the onvocation say, or whatever, <laughs> and just like, you know, move to the other side of the fire, there was always somebody around, that is, that is one of the great truths, I think, of history throughout throughout uh, hum- human time, mm-hmm. that's for certain. Um, also, I, I get attracted to certain objects. I don't know if you've uh, delved into that whole theory that objects uh, can have um, presence to themselves and some kind of, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, sentience? Mm-hmm. Sentience? Sentient? Sentient, sentient yeah, objects. You got it. Um, and sometimes I feel that, like I'll have a hard time putting something back at mm-hmm. Ikea. But I'm happy that there's well, that in moment. Ikea, of all, these are the objects that reach anything. out to you? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, they require my participation, which <laughs> I appreciate. Uh, I'm a giver. But, yeah, I'm a, I like to having that time where before the checkout. So you can decide, I don't really need this bag of candles no. or this pillow, and then I can put it back. But I have to have a moment with certain things. If I'm flea marketing, mm-hmm. you know, and I see something, I get very drawn to it. Mm-hmm. I have to really check in with myself to say, will this object be okay if I don't get it? Wow. Not all the time, but sometimes yeah. that is. You ever go to Ikea? <laughs> I have. Yeah. I think they're probably owned by, like, a divorce attorney or a relationship counselor. <laughs> Because I've gotten into the worst fights. <laughs> Just wait a minute. Oh, it's so bad. Um, uh, do you have a spiritual practice of any kind? Uh, no, no. I am a fundamentalist atheist. Like, if we had a rogue fundamental wing, yeah. I'd be the asshole in the suicide vest. That's how much of an atheist I am. <laughs> Extreme. Yeah. Just, How does that fit in with everybody else in the family? Not okay? so good. Not, not so, so good. good. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you feel like the uh, well, you probably don't. You don't need to. You don't have any pressure with the kids. I don't. No. I don't have any. No, have I do don't. A christening. No, I did. Baptism? My father told me this. This is interesting. My father, who was super Catholic, my father was almost a priest. He he was like went into the seminary. Uh, my father told me just recently. Now my son is six years old. That he. Um, baptized him. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking Like, you took him at night? And he was like, no, no, no. Like, wait, one day when I was holding him and he was a baby, I took some holy water and I put it on his head. <laughs> I was like, what? You know? Um, but fi- fine. I would, if my father had asked me to do it, I'd be like, do whatever the fuck you want. Okay, Go for so it. You just, a, you do whatever makes you breach. happy. Yeah. yeah. It's, maybe he has some boundary issues or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little sneaky. <laughs> That's like when they baptize people after they've died. You, or like the Mormon church or sometimes make you a Mormon after you go. You're like, no, I don't think. Yeah. That's not what the. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not what I want to have happen. I want to be buried in a coffin in the shape of my profession like they <laughs> do out there. Um, uh, so that's fine. I loved, uh, and we talked about this a little bit, I loved the the story of the birth of your second child, how rushed it was, because uh, I think as I've recounted on this show, um, my niece Katrina had a similar situation with uh, the birth of Pepsi, where we were in the cab and uh, just screaming, and then you get in to the hospital, way up there, uh, 59, and you get into the thing, and 
then the doula, who had already given us so much extra time, uh, uh, the doula presses the wrong button on the elevator, so we go up to <laughs> whatever it was, 11, no. to come back down to 7. My thought is that the um, birthing center should be on the first floor. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that seems a, a simple fix, doesn't it? Because <laughs> right. I had the exact, and in the exact same place. So it was the exact same place, and we, was the exact, you know, say, I, my, my wife could not even, like, walk. So I had to put her in a wheelchair, and I was, like, banging her into walls, and you got to find the fucking elevator. You, and it was terrible. And then we get up, and we go into the, just the triage, that triage area where, you know, you're, like, there's the person you check in with, like, the receptionist person. Yeah. And when I had turned to tell the receptionist, like, we don't have time for this. Like, you just point me to a room. My wife is going to have this baby. By the, t- the time it took me to say that one sentence, when I turned back, my wife was up. She was out of the chair. Her shirt was up. Her tits were out. Her pants were down. Everything was out. There was pee. There was shit. There was blood. She was screaming, ah! And finally, this nurse comes flying. And these poor people are waiting in the maternity ward, you know, just like having a normal labor. Like they're like texting their mom, right? They're like, hi, mom, I'm in labor. Then they're like, ah, you know, and then finally this nurse comes flying in to the to the triage. And she's from the island. And she's like, she's going to have that baby on the floor. Get up in a gurney. Get up in a gurney. She's going to have that baby on the floor. You know, and then me with my accent, I'm screaming. She's going to have the baby on the floor, on the floor. This is a disaster. And then he threw her into a gurney and like two seconds later, my wife was like wheeled into the room and yeah. out came sound number two. Well, that's it. <laughs> and that's that's so similar. I had, you know, I was there and uh, Katrina drops to the floor. Says, Baby's coming out and the, the doctor is in the bathroom. She hears her screaming, runs in, and we, you know, don't have the baby. I think maybe floor babies are fine. I don't <laughs> think there's anything wrong with having a baby on the floor. But pick her up and get her into the room, and I have to sign a piece of paper. And uh, then I hear, "Are you you want to save these pants? And somebody's got some scissors out. And uh, Katrina says, what? what? And, <laughs> and the person, are you, are you a t- interested in saving these pants and and she, she says no and then another person said just pull them off you don't have to cut off the, yeah. the pants so they, they take care of it i sign the form and i turn around and a push and then there there's a little pepsi wow. right right out there in the world screaming and um you know it, it, she could have had a prairie birth though yeah. you know i mean that's the kind of strength yeah. of this gal and you just bite on a stick and go on with the harvest mm-hmm I'm impressed by by that. It's kind of good to wait, I thought. (laughs) (laughs) She might have other thinking uh, thoughts about it. Uh, She's got she uh, she was fine. Everything's fine. (laughs) You feel like it gets a little uh, easier now that the boys are older. Yeah, for sure. Now my kids are three and six, so it's a it's it's a lot easier. And telling stories of their own, no doubt. And telling stories of their own. That's right. (laughs) You see a little uh, bit of yourself in them. I do. Well, you know, and and so our sons is my my first son is my wife's biologically. My second son is mine biologically, but they have the same uh, donor, so they are blood brothers. Uh-huh. Um, but you could very much tell. So it was for us. It's like easy with the variable, right? Like if you're straight and your children are both of yours biologically, like you know, you you can like for us, it's like there's this. It's so easy. It's like if my son walked in the room, uh, you would be. You know, he's like feral. He's like. Like he's bananas, and everyone's like, "That's Tara's." And then my wife's, you know, he's he's like perfect and like gorgeous and great and and level headed and easygoing, and everyone's like, "That's Shauna's baby." <laughs> uh, well, um, you're going to be doing some traveling. They're going to come with you. Um, well, it's like a tri. I know they're not coming with me, but it's like a tri- I'm doing a tour, a book tour, but it's basically tri-state area, so I can. It's not. I don't have to go too far or sleep over or anything, but I'll be doing a bunch of readings and all that fun you shit. Should you get a limo to take you around. I, I should. Yeah. What with my history and all, expect <laughs> no less. I think so. And the book it came about. People, uh, uh, you were already writing, publishing some pieces in the New York Times, various places. Yeah. Uh, you got approached by somebody, or you sought it out. Yeah, I got approached by some agents uh, after I put a couple pieces out, and then and the first person that wrote to me was like, "Do you do you have a book?" And I was like, "No." I was like, "I don't think I just have these stories," and he said, "No." And then finally, you know, I I was like, "All right, I think I could do this as one big narrative." And I should just add that there was a reason. So doing the moth, people would talk about my literal voice, right? Obviously, uh-huh. they were like, "People were into my accent, people were into my voice," and then we haven't had this, and it's you know, it's kind of different, and we it seemed, yeah, I you know. <laughs> 
and <laughs> it's slightly problematic. Yeah, but yes. Finally, when I was when I was publishing, it became a little more serious. Like people were really like, "Wow, this whole kind of demographic has not been heard from." And so, and so that's that means something to me. So that you know, there's not been a lot of work uh, by working class New York women about working class New York women. Basically, the last book. That was written about us um, is a tree grows in Brooklyn, which is which is like the last household name, um, yeah. which is seventy three years old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an entire lifetime. Like that, my whole demographic is just gone, just disappeared. And it, that, so that was what got me to write. Really, like was I was like, I gotta do it. We gotta get the ball rolling. This doesn't have to be the best thing, but like, how has this happened? You know, there's a canon of work of working class New York men, right? right? In all genres, you know, but if you even go to a Scorsese film, right, you've got, you know, it's like De Niro, De Niro, De Niro, cut to a lady in a house dress for three seconds, back to De Niro, De Niro, De Niro. Look, <laughs> right. we, we had no voice. So that really got me, you know, that really inspired me to kind of, to write this book and be like, you know, we're here. We've been here for the last hundred years. You might want to hear from us. Right. A little, you know, for <laughs> fuck's sake. Well, I'm I'm eager to hear Thanks. hear from uh, you and them, and uh, uh, to hear that story and to read through uh, the book when it comes out. Um, and I think that's hugely important. Uh, it comes back to that same idea of being heard and being a. a Listen to yeah. and 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 really uh, understood for who you are and where you come from and what you do and um, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. I do. Um, I asked this question once, and uh, we'll we'll wrap up. But um, how much truth do you think? Uh, I asked this question once in a storytelling kind of forum thing, mm-hmm. and it, it got a little uh, tense. I thought in the room, but so how much truth does there need to be in the story? Because I remember things a certain way, and sometimes it makes for a better story if I put a little bit in there. But you have a pretty vivid and accurate uh, memory for everything. Do you think it's okay to bend the truth a little bit, have a little fun with things? Mm, um, no, I, I don't. I try to get it as right as I can get it. Um, so and how do you fact check that kind I, of thing? I, I, someone else asked me this in an interview recently about the book. I do have a good memory. I mean, my memory is very episodic, which is in some ways what makes oh, you know it's memoirs difficult. Is that you, if you if it's you know it's episodic, and so some, in some ways you know, it's hard to go with a through line because you. But when I have those memories, they are very vivid. I don't know why. I I have whole stretches where there's nothing, but when I have something, <laughs> it is like I can remember everything. And so I, you know, I go as truth, I get as much of it out as I can, and then I fact check. I call my father, I call my mother, I call, and I still, you know, you still end up there's like discrepancies amongst people. Like your mother will be like, yes, it was like that. And your father will be like, no, it was like not like that. Right. But it means a lot to me for it to be as true as possible, especially because I've had a life where people are like, oh, the truth is stranger than fiction, you know, with the with the multimillionaire cleaning lady, right, you know, right, thing, right. but the mom doesn't take the money. People, you know, I feel like I, ha- I, I want it to be as real and as true as possible. So I... Everyone in my book got a call, and was and and unless they're dead, so I didn't call my grandma. I can make up anything of my want about you, grandma. Huh? Um, but, you know, everybody else was... I, I tried my best, yeah. Well, I... I- Happy for that, Thanks. and I'm happy. Uh, uh, I'm pleased to know that. Yeah, and uh, pleased for for listeners to know that too. And uh, so, uh, the book comes out October 11th. October 11th. You're going to be doing some uh, uh, touring around, as you said, yes. in the tri-state area. We look at uh, uh, yeah. your website for yep. information. You can go to TaraClancy.com, and uh, yeah, the Clancy's of Queens is the name of the book, yeah. and so. I'm Tara Clancy, you know. <laughs> and just, you'll be doing some storytelling things around town. I'll sure, be doing the, all yeah, the time. We launch at the Astoria Bookshop because it's the only bookstore in Queens. I mean, not be, just because of that's a great <laughs> store, but it is the only one. How it, that is messed up as that is, uh, and then I'll be in Barnes and Noble in Manhattan and Staten Island and a bunch of various stores. So. Doing the tour. Do you have a vision for something that could happen with it after the book, or right now it's focused on getting this thing out there into the world? Um, what do you mean, vision for? Oh, I, TV or oh, another um, there is already that there yeah. that's already uh, in the works that um, so we're working we're working on that now well that's very exciting that's very exciting and we'll stay tuned Tara thank you so much for thank joining you, me thank you great. all right all right talk to you soon all right here's the thing we bonded over this conversation folks it's the second episode 
in a row where both my guest and myself got a little teary. And both times we're talking about father figures. Do I bring out a little sensitivity about dads? I don't know. But I love talking with Tara, and I look forward to reading her wonderful book, which comes out on October 11th. Everywhere books are sold. Now, till next time, this night might be over, but a bright new day is just ahead. Good night. Thanks for listening. Deep Night is written and performed by James Bewley with production assistance from Harvest Works in New York City. Music throughout each episode is provided by the amazing talents on the artistic roster of Howler Hills Farm in the great state of Ohio. Deep Night theme by Zach Gabbard, Season 9 podcast icon and logo designed by Samantha Mash. Download episodes directly through DaleRadio.com or subscribe and review the show on iTunes. Also available on Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Follow Dale on Twitter at Dale Radio or Instagram at Dale Seaver for behind-the-scenes peeks into the production of the show and the life of Dale Seaver. Thank you to all the subscribers and supporters of this program, and thanks to you for listening.